I had an experience on that ocean crossing in the summer of 1991, where I was in the Azores. We sailed 26 days nonstop and then spent about two months in the Azores, which is just a remarkable chain of islands about a thousand miles from Portugal. Mm -hmm. And at one point, we had a little impromptu party in the marina. And I think I counted about 14 nationalities present. Wow. And... Just by luck, I met this Dutch jazz singer who was doing some work in the Azores, and we got together, and because there's a standard repertoire of tunes, we found some things that we knew, and I accompanied her, and she sang, and it tied everybody together. Everybody listened, and the music was, in fact, the universal language. It was a magic experience. Welcome to Audio Branding, the hidden gem of marketing. I'm your host, Jody Krangle, and this podcast will discuss just how sound influences our behavior. I generally talk about this in the context of advertising and marketing, but there are other places this is important too. I really feel that it plays a much more important role in our lives than maybe we realize. So let's delve a little deeper. This is the first part of my interview with Dave Bricker. Have you ever struggled to create messages that customers actually want to hear? Have you wondered why some messages connect with audiences and others don't? Are you talking about your clients or talking about yourself? Today's guest spent 15 years sailing in search of stories. He's the author of 11 books, including an adventure sailing memoir, two books about writing, and three about storytelling. His company, Remarkable Stories Incorporated, teaches the art of business transformation through storytelling. If you want to say it, share it, or sell it, bring him your story. He'll help you tell it. Today, he'll be talking with me about stories and how they work. We'll talk about the audio side of storytelling and how we all can use strategic storytelling to grow our businesses. Please welcome award-winning speaker, author, and graphic designer, transatlantic sailor, and pretty good jazz guitar player, Dave Bricker. The best place to learn more about him is on his website at storysailing.com. Thank you very much for talking with me, Dave. I really appreciate you taking the time. Jody, it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. So I wanted to ask you, in the beginning, I mean, how did this idea of storytelling for business start with you? Storytelling happened for me in two ways. One thing that happened is right out of college, I worked on an art project some of your listeners might be familiar with. It was the Christo Surrounded Islands Project in 1983. Mm -hmm. And the artist Christo surrounded this group of islands in Biscayne Bay with a 200-foot-wide border of pink fabric. You can look up the Christo Surrounded Islands Project. And that was my summer job after my first year of college. And huh. on that job, yeah, it was fun. It's quite the job, I got, yeah. <laughs> I, I got best job ever. I got paid to sit around in a boat all day. It was it was magic. And, I'll bet. And, <laughs> and probably a bad influence on my later life. But I met these remarkable people who lived on sailboats in the Anchorage in Miami. They lived, oh, I don't know, half a mile offshore. They rode in and out. And when I started hearing the stories that they had about faraway places and great adventures, I realized that there was something missing in my life, and I wanted a taste of that too. I wanted my own stories. So to make a long story short, under those 
questionable influences, I finished college, and by the time I graduated, I had bought a small sailboat and headed off to the Bahamas with $30 in my pocket and a locker full of food and dreams. Uh Uh-huh. And how long did you do that for? I ended up cruising for two or three years, maybe a little more, did a transatlantic in 1991, but spent a total of 15 years living on board sailboats. So that was a a huge piece of my lifestyle. Oh, I see. Okay, so that's where story sailing came from. <laughs> that that's the genesis of story sailing. The other thing is for me, I've always been interested in anything communication, whether that's music, writing, mm-hmm. speaking, graphic design, code, it's. Uh, I had this problem of how can I reconcile all of these interests? I didn't fit into a particular silo or category. And finally, it dawned on me that storytelling was the thing that held all of those pieces together. Every one of those disciplines is a dialect of storytelling with its mm-hmm. own strategies and techniques. Okay, so you use this to help people um, forward their business, connect better with their clients, connect better with an audience. Um, what, what, what kind of applications does this have? Well, I think, for example, and a simple, uh, a simple example is many people will talk about the features instead of the benefits. They'll do a big data dump as they try to communicate what their offering is. They talk about their clients they've worked with. They talk about their credentials and degrees. They talk mm-hmm. about their equipment, but they're not really telling stories that connect with people. I see. And how would they better be able to do that? Well, the story sailing model, the first golden rule of storytelling is that stories are always about people. They may be about talking aliens or or talking animals or aliens, but at least metaphorically speaking, they're always about people. Mm -hmm. And if we talk about people, we're talking about outcomes. We're talking about value. So if you're talking about prices, processes, ingredients, and data, you're not talking about people. If you're not talking about people, you're not connecting. And it's as simple as that. Mm-hmm. Okay. So how does audio come into that? You know, we are in an audio show. <laughs> <laughs> well, audio comes into at least some of it, but it's very powerful. So for example, when we talk about speaking, which is one of the simplest fundamental ways we connect with other people, Mm -hmm. if I slow this down and speak in a measured way, I'm speaking with authority, I'm relaxed, I'm conveying my expertise, and I'm asking people to lean in and listen a little bit. So you could talk about pausing and pacing as one aspect in which audio influences the way people hear us and respond to us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a very big part of voiceover as well, definitely. So <laughs> sort of familiar. <laughs> uh, so you're also a musician, right? You uh, played jazz guitar? That's correct. Where did that come from? That's something I picked up in high school, and playing music is my drug. I don't care to do it professionally, <laughs> okay. but uh-huh. I, I I play every day of my life, and it's something I continue to get better at in my 50s, mm-hmm. and uh, it's just something I love. But it's a wonderful storytelling tool, even before we get into the words. I see. Okay. So do you use music in your storytelling? I mean, in the actual speeches that you give? 
Generally, I don't, though it's a direction I'd like to move in. Mm -hmm. I find it's a little bit, it's, it's the old walking and chewing gum problem. Speaking eloquently while focusing on making my hands dance on the instrument is a little overwhelming for me. Yeah. I wonder if maybe you could play something in the background while you're speaking or use it as an example in certain cases and things like that. Yeah, or or even just write some songs or, or, or musical passages that help people remember certain concepts. Yeah, it's true, because uh, that kind of thing does tend to help people remember a little better, yeah. The, the applications for music in communication, uh, in business communication, are tremendous, but they're usually overlooked. So can you give some examples? Do you have any way of uh, playing us anything? <laughs> <laughs> Dare I ask? <laughs> sure, let's let's try it. I'll I'll keep these short and simple because it's it's not a concert, but let me see if I can give you some ideas. So here are just some samples of things that the average listener might take for granted, but I can use for example diminished chords. Think of the girl tied to the railroad track. You have this <laughs> yeah. ascending series of chords, and when you hear it, when you recognize it, most people won't think of it in terms of music theory, but if you were a film scorer or something like that, mm -hmm. that might be the kind of thing you would jump to to create tension. Or an, another similar technique is to use what's called a whole tone scale. Let's say we're going to go into a dream sequence. Mm -hmm. <laughs> sure. Now we wake up in Oz. So with some of the <laughs> some yeah. of these simple musical devices, they have psychological effects on people. And of course, then there are different musical styles. I can I can take you to the country. Mm -hmm. Or I can take you into a, a into a, a club in the 1940s. That's great. Yeah. <laughs> and, and so on. Definitely have different feelings. Yeah. <laughs> it's a little bit like changing fonts. Yeah, definitely would be. <laughs> so, I mean, these are, are simple examples, but you you develop, it's like a color palette or mm -hmm. a set of typefaces that you use. It's, it's another storytelling device, and it really affects people, even if they're not aware that they're hearing it. Yeah. I often wonder how much of this is learned. And how much of it is innate? Because we've had music in movies since, you know, obviously very early days, but we've grown used to that um, idea, that tone that you used would be for a dream sequence or that, um, you know, the tension rising would be in that sequence of notes. Um, because someone used it at first. And I wonder if... We've just become used to that. Like, what, what do you think? How much of this is uh, learned and how much is actually, you know, innate? I think like almost anything, it's a mix. For example, if you look at cultures throughout the world, mm -hmm. almost all of them respond to the standard 12 notes of the of the diatonic scale. Sure. You have some some strange 
eight, what they call asymmetric scales in some Indian music and things like that. But almost universally, that, that standard major scale is something that people respond to, compose with, and it transcends cultures. At the same time, if you go to different parts of the world, there are going to be different instruments, different sounds, mm-hmm. uh, different folklore. For example, a lot of my generation will listen to what what they now call classic rock yes. because yeah. this is what this is what we grew up on. Mm-hmm. And and it it stimulates us in ways where take somebody from uh, South America might not have the same associations with that music. So I think it's a mix of, of culture, but also some predisposition to hear notes that align with certain physics and certain scales and the overtone series and things which we won't bore people with. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Okay. So it's a bit of a mix. Yeah. I I love the idea of music being a universal language. I mean, definitely we all respond to it. And, um, you know, uh, fast beats end up being uh, happy or frenetic or somewhere in between or, you know, people exercising to fast music, that kind of thing, playlists. Um, and I don't, I think that kind of transcends culture, I, you know, depends on what you're listening to, but um, yeah, a lot of it is uh, something that we all respond to. I had an experience on that ocean crossing in the summer of 1991, where I was in the Azores. We sailed 26 days nonstop and then spent about two months in the Azores, which is just a remarkable chain of islands about a thousand miles from Portugal. Mm-hmm. And at one point, we had a little impromptu party in the marina. And I think I counted about 14 nationalities present. Wow. And just by luck, I met this Dutch jazz singer who was doing some work in the Azores, and we got together, and because there's a standard repertoire of tunes, we found some things that we knew, and I accompanied her, and she sang, and it tied everybody together. Everybody listened, and the music was, in fact, the universal language. It was a magic experience. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and playing with other people, again, is a magical experience, too. It's a... Uh... A, a very um, enlightening shared experience. <laughs> no doubt. It's it's really a conversation. And it's one of the reasons I love jazz is that improvisational part of it. It's that mix of improvisation and structure. So how did you, um, like, do you practice the improvisation? Um, is it just something that you developed over time? That's always been a, a thing for me where I'm not really sure where to start with that. So if someone wanted to learn about that sort of thing, what, where, where do you think they should start? It's, it's interesting you mention that because if you think about it, we're both improvising right now. If I well, ask yeah. you, what... what <laughs> What what are you going to say 10 seconds from now? You have no idea whatsoever. It's true. <laughs> and so what are your what are you drawing on? You're you're drawing on the the basics of language that you've internalized. There are certain vocabulary, uh, not just words, but phrases that that we just uh, internalize and begin to use. Mm-hmm. So if you want to learn to improvise in music, you listen to great improvisers. And some people like to transcribe the solos of great improvisers. And if you transcribe only John Coltrane or Miles Davis or Thelonious Monk, you'll probably start to sound like them. Mm-hmm. But if you transcribe dozens of different people, 
it starts to blend together into your own style. I see. Okay. Yeah, I've heard a lot of um, uh, cartoon voice uh, actors and video game actors talk about how they blend their mimicking of one person, which isn't quite perfect, into something that completely changes into something different. <laughs> so, yeah, uh, in a in a way, I guess that sort of means you're taking known progressions and through a blending of mimicking a bunch of people, it becomes your own. Right. And in the same way, I guess there are things in language, functional ideas that we want to express. and the, but, but there are numerous synonyms for words, and there are different orders that we can put the word in. So in to make an analogy with jazz, you might have a tune, say a standard tune like All the Things You Are, mm -hmm. or a blues tune, or I Got Rhythm, which is the, the foundation of a whole category of, of different tunes that are called rhythm changes. Sure. And it's a fairly standard bunch of chord progressions. But what do you play on top of those when you improvise? Do you play the notes that outline the chords? Do you play between those notes? Do you play above and below those notes so that you're kind of sliding in and out? How much tension are you creating? How much space are you leaving? So it's that structure that's common to everybody playing the tune, not only in that musical situation, but around the world, people who play that tune, but then your own take on how do you express your own ideas, improvising your melodies? So how does that come into storytelling, for instance? Um, do you do a lot of improvisation when you're telling a story on stage, especially in a business context? Or have you already sort of planned out your outline, etc.? It's a mix because, and, and I'm glad you brought up public speaking, because I think what happens with a lot of speakers is they try to memorize the performance, especially people who are new to speaking. It's time to do their first speech, and they can spend 20, 30, 40 hours trying to memorize a five-minute speech. And by the time they get to where they're delivering that speech, they're so freaked out that they forget their lines. <laughs> yeah, that would be me. <laughs> right. Whereas if you write the key points of the speech, if you start out, and I'm coming back to this people-centric idea, this golden rule of storytelling, what is the outcome for the audience? The purpose of a speech is to transform an audience. How do you want them to think, feel, or act differently when you're done speaking? Mm -hmm. Work backward from that premise, and then what two or three or four points do you want to make that lead up to that premise? And then put an introduction that attracts people's interests. Have you ever wanted to? Have you ever tried to? Have you ever wondered why? Fill in some of those questions or state a factoid that draws people in. 83.7% mm -hmm. of all statistics are made up on the spot. <laughs> right? <laughs> That's a good one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. What, what are you going to do that gets the audience interested? Establish who you are, why you're there, what they're going to leave with. And if you can. Work on the beginning and work on the ending. If your steps in the middle are clearly defined, then you can probably improvise around them. And if you practice a little bit, 
you'll find some dead ends, but you'll also find some clear paths to the next place. Mm-hmm. I, I call it the suspension bridge method, where you're maybe building your bridge out of towers. And if you understand those points where you're you're going to make your big points, you're going to get the audience to say yes or uh-huh or hmm, I never thought of that. The spaces in between are your spans. Mm-hmm. So if you can work on the towers, then the spans tend to take care of themselves with minimal practice. I see. So did you learn this on your own? Did you take lessons from somewhere? Or uh, what would you suggest people do if they want to get better at this? Well, as for my own path, it's been a combination of things. I've had some wonderful mentors in the speaking business through the National Speakers Association, which is a professional association for people interested in speaking professionally. Mm-hmm. It's a wonderful group of very giving people. And you can sit down with somebody who's a, a an award-winning keynote speaker who will happily share their ideas most of the time. And, and some of those people have been tremendous. Uh, Kelly Swanson, for example, is a absolute savant storyteller, and she speaks all over uh, about storytelling and does great workshops. And then at the same time, you have to be one of those people who's driven to get good at whatever you're interested in. Mm-hmm. So whatever catches my fancy, I try to do my own PhD in it. And I'm researching, I'm reading all the books, I'm connecting with the people, I'm watching the videos. So I spend a lot of time working on my speaking skills, writing about speaking, because we all teach the things we want to learn most. And mm-hmm. I'm president of a Toastmasters chapter. Toastmasters is a another magic organization. It's not targeted to people who want to speak professionally so much as to professionals who want to speak. And there are, I think, 285,000 Toastmasters members around the world, and there's probably a chapter near you. Wow. Okay. So you mentioned uh, professionals who want to learn how to speak. So who do you think could benefit from this kind of thing? Well, let's take a big example first. Let's say, oh, for example, there's that merger that happened between U.S. Air and American Airlines, two gigantic corporations merging. Sure. Now, there's going to be some unrest because you're merging two workforces. And you're also going to get unrest because stockholders are not going to be sure whether to buy or sell. They want to know what's going on. So the speeches made internally to the to the workforce and externally to people at large, to investors, to air travelers, can mean the difference of tens of millions of dollars or hundreds of millions of dollars in, in, in results. And when people, when leaders get up and they do a boring data dump and they put a bunch of slides on the screen with Excel spreadsheets on them, it's it's just not good leadership, even if it's good data. So people like that could definitely learn how to give a better speech or tell a story. Absolutely. And it's the stories that that draw people in more. I'm, I'm convinced that stories are the most powerful tool we have for connecting with people for a variety of reasons. Uh, do you want to talk about some of those reasons? <laughs> well, <laughs> uh, I mean, you know, just as examples. <laughs> just, just since Which we're on just, the topic. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. So I think that if we're, we're all hunter-gatherers at heart, 
we stepped out of the wilderness 20,000 years ago, which in evolutionary terms is the blink of an eye. Mm-hmm. And we no longer use clubs to uh, to kill our prey. We use uh, clubs to meet people. And we no longer <laughs> live in caves. We, we live in condos. So we uh-huh. have this veneer of, of civilization and this veneer of technology and the magic things that we have that we take for granted, we zoom around in our cars and we get on airplanes and we have antibiotics and clean running water and refrigeration and 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 cell phones that have more power than what the astronauts took to the moon. <laughs> That's amazing, isn't that? <laughs> it, it, when, when you stop and think about it, despite all the problems we have, there's plenty mm-hmm. of space for gratitude in this world. Oh, yeah. And yet... We're still these hunter-gatherers, and our mode of operation is that we are constantly scanning the world for threats and opportunities. We're looking around. If you stand on a street corner and look up at the top of a building, somebody's going to come along and start staring upward also because they're going to wonder, is something falling? Is it a safe is it money? What is it? Yeah. There's a threat or an opportunity here. <laughs> what is this person here? seeing? Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and pretty soon there's six people staring at nothing because yeah. they want to know what they're missing. Uh-huh. So this, this scanning behavior, is it's, it's not difficult to bring to the surface. Now, let's say I put you in a movie theater with a couple of hundred other people who are munching their popcorn and sipping their drinks and crinkling their candy wrappers. But you're in a safe place where you're not too worried about threats. Mm-hmm. And what happens is you get sucked into that movie and you forget and tune out all those people who are around you. You're no longer sitting at a chair. You are in whatever adventure is having on the screen. Mm-hmm. And your fight or flight reflex, your amygdala, the part of the brain that's responsible for that, has been hijacked. And you are now scanning for threats and opportunities inside my narrative. If I tell a story and I bring you into that story and you are in my setting and my time, then what happens is I've got you in a place where you are incredibly open and receptive to my ideas because you're still in a foreign place and my leadership is important to you. This has been part one of our interview. I hope you'll tune in next week for part two. Well, that's the end of this episode. Thanks for listening. And if you like what you heard, please take a moment to give the podcast a review. It's greatly appreciated and super helpful. Until next time.